Welcome to the Retail Insider video interview series. I'm your host here today, Craig Patterson, and we're joined with a special guest. This is Mark Cohen. He's the Director of Retail Studies at Columbia Business School. He was also the CEO of Sears Canada from 2001 and 2004. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about Nordstrom and its exit from the Canadian market. Uh, this did surprise me a little bit. I was aware of it uh, a few weeks before it was going to happen and we had kept it quiet. Uh, um, I was still in a state of disbelief. But uh, tell me about uh, why Nordstrom left Canada and uh, was it a surprise for you when you found out the news? Well, I was not a surprise at all. Um, their business in the United States has been flagging, um, if not downright struggling. And uh, having you know, done business at Sears Canada in the six Nordstrom locations that they opened, uh, so having some familiarity with those boxes, those neighborhoods, those markets, the competition, albeit some years ago, but uh, I think my impression of the circumstances they put themselves in are uh, certainly valid today as they might have been when I was there. Uh, they opened six stores. I thought three of them had potential viability uh, and three were absolutely not going to uh, be successful. I was leery of their ability at the outset to jump into Canada. Uh, and I must say that this isn't an American Canadian or Canadian American phenomenon, because in my view, most retailers, whether they're North American, Asian or European, who have jumped a national border have failed. They've either failed outright or they've eventually uh, succeeded at some, in some suboptimal way because there's an insidiousness about the complications that you face that you're seemingly never fully prepared for when you do jump that border. And, and so Nordstrom got sucked into a real estate deal involving six high-profile Sears Canada uh, stores that at face value uh, had them all jazzed about the opportunity, uh, having failed to realize that uh, Canada is uh, a real challenge. You know, its, it's landmass is the same as the U.S., plus or minus a few hundred uh, thousand square feet, um, but there are only 38 million Canadians. That's not to diminish the importance of Canada and Canadians, but that's in contrast to 325 million Americans. So the market size is fundamentally different. And then, of course, there are the vagaries of currency uh, uh, equivalents. Uh, uh, when I was in Canada, at one point, the U.S. and Canadian dollar were pretty much at parity for a while. Now, of course, there's a tremendous differential. And and then there is the the uh, logistics of servicing a business across this enormous landmass without an enormous number of customers. You know, like it or not, uh, your success or failure is based on your productivity. And the hubris that the Nordstroms exhibited in presuming that Canadians would be um, um, forced to walk around without clothes until they arrived is just foolishness personified. Um uh, Sophisticated and uh, affluent Canadians certainly have a variety of very successful Canadian-based retailers with which to shop, uh, notably Holt Renfrew on the specialty store size, side, Harry Rosen, 
And so what does Nordstrom bring to the table? You know, what do they really offer? I'm sure they opened with much fanfare, tremendous uh, uh, grand opening surge, lots of enthusiasm that uh, petered out uh, and has disappeared. Certainly COVID was not helpful, but that is what it is. Uh, if you'd like, I can talk about the six locations. That so, was going to be my next question, actually. I was going to say you mentioned that uh, um, three of the locations uh, you know, had potential for success and three didn't. I can probably guess which ones you're going to say, but tell me about some of the individual store locations that Nordstrom had chosen in Canada for its full line larger store locations. We don't really have to go into Nordstrom Rack. That's a bit of a different type of retail model. Well, Vancouver is a sister city to Seattle, and so... I know there are lots of Canadians who regularly cross shop into the U.S., into the Seattle marketplace. Uh, and so the idea that Nordstrom brand equity, brand equity be, would be well known in British Columbia, specifically in the Vancouver market, is sort of an obvious. Um, but, but did Canadians in the rest of Canada have tremendous insight and sensitivity to Nordstrom. I'm, I'm sure lots of folks were aware of them as a brand, but not intimately enough to support them as maybe they would have done in Vancouver. Uh, the next location that I think would be a potential success would be the Yorkdale Mall in um, suburban uh, Toronto, which is the upmarket uh, bullseye for affluence and fashion in the Toronto marketplace in a suburban setting. Uh, the third, uh, which I cited in some things that I've written about, would be Ottawa, because uh, Nordstrom does extraordinarily well in the Washington, D.C. metro area, uh, which is obviously uh, the capital of the U.S., and it's an enormous government hub. Ottawa is an enormous government hub, little different than Washington in that it has a French flavor to it by way of population and culture, but nonetheless, um, uh, a government center uh, has lots of career folks who tend to be uh, uh, more focused on their apparel uh, than they would in an otherwise suburban location. So I thought those three were, you know, if anything was going to be successful, any of those locations would be successful. It would be those three. As far as the three that I thought were uh, off the mark, uh, one was Sherway Gardens, another suburban location west of Toronto, a nice looking mall, a uh, nice community, but certainly not distinctive enough. Uh, and then of course there's uh, the Eaton Center, which is, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get some rocks thrown at me for saying this, but I did run a business that did business across Canada, and I did live three or four blocks from the Eaton Center for four years. And I'm here to tell you the Eaton Center, as beautiful as it is, and it is an expansive, beautiful physical facility, it's a dud as a retail center because the Eaton Center is a transit hub. And so you see every day lots of folks moving through the center, but you don't see a lot of folk shopping. And the Eaton Center does not have a residential core that surrounds it of any consequence, unlike, for example, Yorkdale or even Sherway. Uh, and then, of course, there's Calgary. So Calgary is the Canadian version of Houston. It's the energy capital of Canada, like Houston is in the U.S. Of course, the climate is night and day different. 
it doesn't ever get very cold in Houston. It's always cold in Calgary, <laughs> seemingly. Um, and Calgary is not a large market, as important a market as it is. And the Chinook Center in Calgary, which is a nice-looking mall, uh, doesn't have the kind of population density that would suggest that Nordstrom could be successful. And oh, by the way, I shared this view with Pete Nordstrom some years ago uh, after he had complained that I was uh, critical. He, he complained about some things I had written that were critical of his West 57th Street store in New York and the rack strategy. So we got into a uh, uh, an email exchange, gentlemanly and uh, upfront, but we definitely were on different sides of the issues. And I said, oh, by the way, Pete, I think these three might, you might make a go of it and the other three, not so much. And he didn't give me any numbers, but he, he did acknowledge that I was right on in the experience that Nordstrom was seeing in those first year or two of operation. I so what can that... I say? It's 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 not a surprise that they they folded their tent and uh, packed up and left. No, I I actually do agree. Now the New York City store you mentioned, Nordstrom built a, a large flagship store, uh, um, not just south of Central Park. Basically, I, I've been told I I don't have the exact sales numbers, but that sales had have seen a reduction to the point that that store's volume might be somewhat similar now to say a suburban Nordstrom unit as opposed to being the top unit that had been predicted originally uh, when that store opened? Well, when I criticized the selection of that location, um, and Pete Nordstrom reached out to explain to me how wrong I was, he cited the fact that uh, it's in close proximity to Central Park, which has 10 million unique visitors a year, to which I said, you know, Pete, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I grew up in New York City. I've lived off and on my entire life in New York City. And I'm here to tell you the two blocks as the crow flies between the southern border of Central Park and West 57th Street might as well be two miles. It's not it's not a uh, a a path that people will traverse, if at all. And uh, Central Park is an enormous uh, footprint which has literally well over a dozen portals from north to south, east to west, and Central Park South, the southern boundary, which he was touting as this portal into Nordstrom, is not the primary entry or exit point for visitors to Central Park. So right out of the gate, I I politely said, I think you've been misled. I, I think you've parked yourself in a place that's not going to see the kind of traffic that you expect or will need to make sense of the store and then i went on to criticize the men's store across the street and i went on and on and on so to make a very long story short this is a business that has been remarkably successful uh but not so much you know for quite a few years before covid the rack was keeping the lights on at nordstrom in terms of growth and profitability and curiously, coming out of COVID, the rack is now acting as an albatross and, and holding them down. And what I said was, uh, at the time, I said, you know, the rack was a brilliant idea 30-some-odd years ago when it was conceived as a place to put markdowns that were unsightly, that had run the table in terms of their appeal 
from the store into someplace else. And it was very successful. And then like all of the outlet stores, whether they're in the U.S. and Canada, they can't live on uh, markdowns and, and uh, the leavings of a season. They need fresh goods. So, of course, Nordstrom started to feed the rack with purpose-built merchandise or opportunistic merchandise. Okay, that's a big business. And for others like uh, Marmax, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, uh, Winners, very successful. But but Nordstrom started to move these racks closer to closer to the store. Betting on the come that a young, less than affluent customer would fall in love with Nordstrom through the rack. And as they got a little older, a little more sophisticated and a little more uh, capable financially, they would they would graduate into Nordstrom. Except that when I visit Iraq in the United States, I see very sophisticated, well, seemingly well-heeled customers feasting on the values at the Rack. And when I ask my students who are all late 20s, early 30s, masters and mistresses of the universe, uh, they're graduate students at Columbia, uh, how many of you have shopped the rack, they all raise their hands. How many of you have shopped the Nordstrom store? They all raise their hands. Well, how do you feel about one versus the other? They always say something like, well, the store is beautiful and it's elegant and it's really marvelous, but the rack is 40 off. So I really don't need the ambiance and the atmosphere if I can get a much better deal, which is why I shop at the rack. End of story. They opened in Canada with six department stores, seven racks, as if whatever they felt was the basis of their success here below the 49th parallel would translate. And clearly it did not. Do you think now Nordstrom has twice a year sales, these anniversary sales, um, whereas you go into a Hudson's Bay store and it seems like you can always get a clearance rack. Do you think that the uh, way that Nordstrom holds sales now I'm thinking, remember Eaton's in Canada years ago with its everyday pricing. Um, do you have any perspective into the Canadian consumer and whether or not Nordstrom's discounting in its full line stores uh, help lead to the, I guess, demise specifically of those full price locations versus people maybe not going to a rack location? Well, they're practicing old-style retail, uh, not unlike what uh, Harrods practices in the UK, where they have that fortnight, uh, where at the end of each season, they run a two-week event where they sweep all of their uh, seasonal goods in and lots of other values as well. But, but you know, the world of retail has become ruthlessly value-oriented. And so the customer does expect a deal all the time which Nordstrom's format does not support. Now, Hudson Bay is the other end of the spectrum where nothing is on sale, is sold at regular price, or almost nothing. You know, the ubiquitous scratch-off back in the day when I was in Canada was an, you know, every two-week event uh, to the point where a customer wouldn't think of shopping without having one of those coupons in hand. So that's, that's not sustainable in its own right. You know, you have to have a differentiated offer, which in Nordstrom's case has always been very well crafted assortments with tremendous consistency in taste level and pricing, a hand in glove with enormously uh, consistent customer service. And that's their watchword. Well, 
There are other retailers who practice high levels of customer service. And of course, they've lost their ability to have truly differentiated, somewhat unique assortments. And the customer doesn't have to shop at a Nordstrom to find goods they're looking for. They can go online and they can shop from anywhere in the world, whether they're living in the US or Canada or anywhere else for that matter. So the, the, uh, the uniqueness that Nordstrom has thrived on has lost quite a bit of its luster. And I'll say one other thing. Um, in the US pre-COVID, Nordstrom was doing almost 40% of its business through its online portal, which had rendered some of their biggest stores nothing more than very fancy distribution centers. You know, lots of excess square footage being devoted to customer fulfillment and customer pickup, which, you know, is not a winning formula because you're paying rent occupancy costs on all that space. So they've been on a slippery slope for quite a few years. And uh, how could they ever have made a go in Canada unless they could be something that Canadians couldn't live without or find elsewhere? And speaking of customer service, I mean, Nordstrom's customer service is legendary, but then so is Harry Rosen's customer service. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, you couldn't ask for a more customer centric culture. And I would say that's pretty much the case for Holt Renfrew and for some other specialists or luxury retailers in Canada. So what did they come to the table with? Hey, we're Nordstrom, come shop. And what did Canadians do? They ignored it. I found I found as a customer myself living in Toronto and visiting all the stores in Canada, I didn't always have positive um, customer service experience with Nordstrom. I know that there was a lot of turnover in terms of staff. I, I know this firsthand working with the University of Alberta. We went down to the Calgary store. This is before oil prices had tanked around 2015. Um, struggling to hire people. I, I know that I think there was an 88% turnover the first year that the CF Toronto Eaton Centre opened to 88% turnover in terms of staff. Uh, I had an experience in the store where, um, and this did surprise me quite a bit, uh, a young uh, gentleman working in the store, I don't think he's there recently, uh, I, I pointed out as a bit of a you know le levity, a bit of a joke, I said, oh, there's a Harry Rosen poster that's uh, looking into the menswear department uh, of Nordstrom at CF Toronto Eaton Centre, and he says, oh, don't go there, Harry Rosen stocks. And I just thought, oh my God, I can't believe you said that about a competitor. Anyways, I, I didn't find that we had the same customer service experience here at Nordstrom, at least at least me being a man of my age, compared to what I've seen in the, in the United States, where uh, no one would ever say anything like that as far as my experiences uh, south of the border. Well, transplanting that culture and that practice is not something you can do overnight. It takes years to build that legacy. And to presume you can transplant it literally overnight and sustain it is, is a fool's effort, you know? Um, so I always thought from day one, it would take years for them to uh, establish themselves uh, with any kind of uh, uh, a long range platform for success. Uh, at the end of the day, I've heard the same kind of experience that you just recounted. 
Uh, I forgive them for the fact that they're new and it's a struggle to build an, uh, a, a workforce that's got some staying power. But you see, it's unacceptable, especially if your point of differentiation is your customer uh, centricity. It's unacceptable. And I must tell you, uh, I say that with with quite alacrity because Sears Canada had an enormously powerful customer service point of view. It certainly was there before I got there and I did everything I could to uh, enhance and enable it to continue. Um, uh, when, when Sears Canada was scorecarded against its competition, which is something the company paid for all the time, we were always head and shoulders above virtually everyone else, certainly the Bay Canadian tire. And we paid a price for that. You know, you don't, you don't, provide excellent customer service just because you say you do. So so I forgive Nord Nordstrom for the fact that they struggled, but at the end of the day, I don't think they had anything to sell that Canadians had to buy from them that they couldn't find somewhere else. And, you know, customers uh, revert to the brand, the brands they're most familiar with and the, the uh, hubris to think that they didn't have alternatives that were local and firmly established is kind of stupid and silly. You know, it's just stupid and silly. You break into a marketplace, you have to earn your stripes from day one for quite a while before you're given the, um, the momentum necessary to continue to carry on. And they just didn't have it, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why Target failed and failed fast. Oh, we'll be talking because, about that. <laughs> you know, Target thought, hey, we're Target. And they they bought a portfolio of stores, half of which were terrible. They were the old Zeller stores, half of which were the original Zeller's locations, which 30, 40 years ago were on the right side of the tracks, opposite a, a crappy uh, Kmart Canada, which Walmart acquired at some point. Walmart moved from one side of a suburban community to another and built a new Walmart superstore. Zellers stayed in the shadow of their original location and became a, um, a, a place customers really didn't find appealing to say nothing of the fact that their assortments were nothing to speak of. So, so Target moved in and half of the locations they acquired were dead on arrival, but they felt because we're Target, we're going to be so powerful that customers will still seek us out. And of course, not only did they not, they made a whole host of terrible mistakes. Shocking that they made those mistakes. Um, and of course, they folded up their tent almost immediately. Um, was there something about Canada? Well, look, again, Canada is a tough place to do business because of its size and complexity. Um Hey, at least Nordstrom didn't try to open a store in Quebec. Which, it was going to. <laughs> I know, which, which, and I don't say this in any kind of a pejorative way, because Sears Canada did almost a third of its business in Quebec and was very profitable and successful in Quebec. Uh, Quebec is another country. Like it or not, it's there's a little more going on than just the language requirements of doing business in Quebec. It's got a different customer profile 
with different taste level and different points of view. And um, so at least they didn't have a seventh store in Quebec. Yeah. Now uh, let's get back to Nordstrom in terms of its real estate. Um, do you have any insight into what could be done with the uh, full size boxes in terms of the full price stores for Nordstrom, those six locations in Canada? Uh, what could you see coming in? Could we see another international retailer, like say Galleries Lafayette come in from Paris, or do you think they could be subdivided or do you have any sort of guesses what could happen there? And at this point, they're just going to be guesses, of course, because we don't have anything confirmed yet from any of the landlords. Well, the gallery, some years ago, Gallery Lafayette opened up a store in New York on West on on East Fifty Seventh Street, and it was a dud. Okay, much fanfare, much publicity. Uh, after the first six months, no business. So, what would uh, appeal to a Gallery Lafayette or a Pronton or a Harrods to jump the ocean in light of historic failure? I can't imagine even if someone were to give them a space. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, there, 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 there's nothing but failure with regard to retailers who've attempted to cross an ocean or cross a border. The, the, the probability of success is de minimis. Even where some very, very powerful global players have eventually succeeded. So for example, Zara years ago opened uh, several dozen stores in the US and immediately failed and they closed them all. And they took a year to figure out why they failed and then they reopened and now they're wildly successful. Why did they fail? They hadn't figured out the logistics of doing business in the United States. You know, it's a landmass that's sub substantially bigger than Europe. And so the time to distance, the cost per uh, unit from a node to a customer's shopping bag was entirely different than what they had expected. And so they, they packed up their tent and then they restarted the clock and they eventually had become really successful. But it cost them a lot of money. Uh, Uniglo had delusional views of 100 plus stores in the US. They now have after years of doing business something like 50 in their struggle because the, the 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 dynamic of a extraordinarily successful Asian fashion retailer doesn't work in North America the way they assumed it would. On every level you can imagine from color preference to sizing. So so what to your original question, what happens to these boxes? Well there are some investment analysts, at least in, in the United States, uh, yapping about uh, experiential retail and maybe someone will open a sporting goods organization with driving ranges and basketball courts and, you know, a way to utilize the space to which I say, yeah, right, in your, you know, your dreams. Uh, these are large boxes. I don't think there's any likelihood that someone will take them out because I can't imagine anyone having a productive, uh, a strategy which would be productive enough, even if the real estate was given to them. Uh, can the spaces be broken up? Uh, yeah, that's usually um, available to the landlords, but it's always very expensive. And, um, you know, there's been a variety of uh, um, reconfigurations that have taken place in the Eaton Center. You know, when Eaton's opened in the Eaton Center, it occupied something like nine floors. 
and then eventually it gave up two, uh, which Sears Canada took over. Um, are there specialty tenants who would consume new specialty space? Uh, maybe in Yorkdale. Um, I may, I can't imagine. I think there's a world of hurt out there in terms of what to do with this space. And it it really is a blight on the mall because it's a parking field. If it's Sherway or Chinook, that's, you know, vacant and empty. And it's a blight on downtown Vancouver and the Redu Center in Ottawa. I don't know what they're going to do there. So what can I say? The real estate business is as ruthlessly challenging as retail because it is retail. And uh, I'm anxiously awaiting what kind of ideas surface as to what to do next. Now, three of the six malls where Nordstrom is located in Canada also have Saks Fifth Avenue stores, which is owned by the Hudson Bay Company. Um, it's no secret that uh, these stores are struggling here in Canada, these Saks Fifth Avenue stores. Do you have any insight into the future, say, of those malls if Saks Fifth Avenue was to exit the Canadian market and just how Saks is doing generally in its entry into Canada? Well, Richard Baker had delusions of grandeur when he uh, decided to move Saks into Canada. The most egregious decision they made was to move Saks into the the bay on Queen Street in Toronto, which happens to be across the street from the Eaton Center, which is completely wrong from a location point of view. You could probably plant a Saks Fifth Avenue on Bloor Street and possibly be successful. Uh, Queen Street, forget about it. These other locations which are struggling, I think there's no future. There's no future. Saks, by the way, uh, you should know, has historically been wildly successful in their flagship store in New York on Fifth Avenue. And half of their suburban stores throughout the United States have eventually failed after their, their leases, um, their original lease agreements, which were basically free, expired. So there's all sorts of Saks Fifth Avenues in the United States that existed because a, a developer paid for Saks's presence. And when those leases uh, ran out, Saks couldn't make sense of re-upping the lease because they never made any money in those locations. How could they possibly insinuate they would make money in Canada? Once again, do they have anything to sell that Canadians can't find somewhere else? I don't think so. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, um, let's talk about American brands generally in Canada. We've seen a few fail. Any insights into why, say, some American retailers have failed when they come into Canada? And is the Canadian consumer that much different than Americans, do you think? Well, the biggest issue, of course, is there's much fewer Canadian consumers. I mean, the numbers are strikingly different. So the population density, the available disposable income by virtue of population size is, is fundamentally different. The, the cities across the 49th parallel optically look just like, you know, American cities, but their population densities are far less. The distance between cities is far greater. So the logistics of servicing Canadians across the 49th parallel 
let alone moving north into the country, are fundamentally more challenging than in the U.S. And that's not because there's anything wrong with Canada. That's just because, you know, it's all about the cost of diesel and the number of miles you have to travel from point to point. There's also a tremendous amount of cross-border duty and other expense involving the movement of goods, which is expensive, no matter how you look at it. It's expensive. And of course, Canadians don't have any tolerance, understandably, for differential pricing. So, you know, I can remember Canadians sharing with me how irritating they found dual pricing on things like magazines. You know, Time Magazine, $6.99 in the U.S., $7.99 in Canada. It pissed them off. Even though they knew damn well there was a difference in the currency value, they're, they're sophisticated shoppers. They don't like it. Uh, when Sears Canada uh, had to provide opening price appliances, refrigerators, washing machines, dishwashers, we had to offer those things at pretty much the same price as they were offered in the U.S. because there was visibility into U.S. pricing, even though there were a whole lot of reasons why those goods should be more expensive. We just had to fight harder to be able to provide them at comparable retail prices. A lot of U.S. retailers have just tacked on that added expense to their retail price, thinking, well, it is what it is. And you know what? The Canadian consumer rejects the idea of it. That was a big issue that Target forgot or never saw the memo with regard to differential pricing. Um, so, so, you know, um, is there something about Canadians that's different? Well, their incomes are a little different. Their tax burdens are higher. You know, they they pay more income tax, but then they have nationalized health care. Good for Canada. Uh, the sales taxes are less uh, in some respects. But but at the end of the day, uh, they're in no doubt more value oriented to some degree than their American counterpart because they have to be. It's not because their sensibility is any different. Um my view is their, their, their sensitivity to fashion is identical, depending on where you're talking about in Canada. So, so uh, you know, Vancouver and Montreal, a whole lot more fashion sensitive than Winnipeg, just like uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York is a whole lot more fashion sensitive than Memphis, Tennessee, or I know I'm going to piss somebody off, you know, Dallas, Texas. There are vagaries that exist from market to market to market. Um, Canada has a whole lot of weather that speaks to adjustments and assortment. So, I mean, you know, Canada has a real honest to God, no fool in winter. Um, there are markets, as you know better than I, in Canada where it starts snowing in September and the snow's still there in June. And so, you know, you got to be thoughtful about how you uh, adjust your assortments from a seasonal point of view. And yeah, the U.S. has cold weather places like Minneapolis, but it's not like Winnipeg, I'm telling you. So there you are. Having been to both cities, I completely agree. Do you have any suggestions for American brands um, or you know, if they're looking to come to Canada, how to be successful? Or what do American brands need to do to be successful in Canada? 
Well, you have to understand your 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 uh, your gun sight has to be pointed at a uh, an outcome that's reasonable. You can't use American math in Canada. You have to adjust it for market size and logistics complications. Uh, certainly, with regard to Quebec, the enormous burden of language. You know, there's a lot of American retailers who have said. Hey, they do business in French, so we'll hire some French speakers to provide us with guidance as to how to proceed. And what they do is they hire a bunch of people who speak Parisian French and immediately discover that that is not acceptable in Quebec because Quebecois language is a little different and it's nuanced and it's pronounced. And so my Sears Canada team... Uh, based in and, and heavily involved in doing business in Quebec were perfectly compliant with the province's rules. You know, never had an issue because we were an original enterprise when all these rules were, were struck years and years and years ago. Uh, we had call centers with bilingual voices. You know, in Ottawa, we had a call center and Half the call center was English and the other half was French. And depending on the customer engagement, they were speaking to someone in their language. And it wasn't someone in the Philippines or someone in India. It was someone who was completely uh, conversant, comfortable, and uh, uh, familiar. Because in Canada, language is a point of sensitivity, like it or not. It is what it is. And so there's a lot of American retailers who've lost the or never known the the, the sensitivity you have to bring to the to the table. And and the allure is, hey, it's right across the border. It's, you know, bingo, 50 miles north, 25 miles north. What's the big deal? We've got a lot of customers who buy goods from us from Canada. Um, it's it's a slam dunk. Except it's not. This is fascinating stuff. One more question for you here. Um, it's back to a Canadian retailer. Uh, Nordstrom obviously has announced it's leaving uh, the Canadian market. Uh, I feel like my foundations have been shaken a bit. Do you have any predictions on the future, say, of uh, Hudson's Bay stores in Canada? Well, Hudson Bay, uh, I'm a tremendous critic of Hudson Bay. And I go back to my four years in Canada where Hudson Bay, before Richard Baker essentially took control of the business uh there was a, there was an american who bought the business and then he died suddenly and richard baker was a minority shareholder who took over the whole thing but but pre all of that uh while i was at sears canada hudson bay tried to convince us to buy them on two occasions and they had actually been uh in conversation with sears canada before i arrived so there were three attempts to sell themselves or merge in some way with Sears Canada. And while I was there, we spent a lot of time standing on their throat because in apparel and accessories, they were our principal competitor. Okay. I mean, we, we had to deal with a whole array of competition. Uh, everybody under the sun, including uh, Canadian Tire, et cetera, et cetera. But we were standing on Hudson Bay's throat and being very successful doing so, I might add, because they were looking to throw the towel into our ring, if you will. Um, 
Baker is a uh, extraordinarily aggressive real estate deal maker who has been manipulating the daylights out of the brand and the equity and the enterprise since the day he took over. And most of the decisions that he's made, if not all of them, from my vantage point, have failed, maybe not so much for him personally, but certainly for the organization. So he moved the Bay into um, the Netherlands and uh, Belgium, which was a catastrophically stupid idea. It was part of a real estate deal that he did with Karstadt in Germany. Um, he screwed around with uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, aggressive expansion of Saxaw Fifth, which has now retrenched. Uh, he's moved Saks into Canada. He was going to move Saks into Europe, but that didn't play out. Um, he's hived off the dot-com business in the U.S. in the form of Saks.com and HBC.com in Canada, which is counterintuitive to the way customers want to shop and expect to shop. But he's managed to suck an investor into the mix who's put money into these new equities. And I suspect he'll try to do that with Zellers. Um, what do I think the future of the Bay is? I don't think there's a future. I think Richard Baker will fritter away uh, whatever equities left, which enables him to monetize the asset as best he can. And there's not going to be much left when all is said and done. That's a very hostile, critical view that I have, but it is what it is. I'm not sure if anything would surprise me at this point after the Nordstrom announcement and whatever else is to come. I've got some insights as well. So uh, hopefully we see the Hudson Bay stores around here in uh, in Canada. So I want to say thank you so much, Mark Cohen. You're the director of retail studies at Col the Columbia Business School at Columbia University in New York City. You were also the CEO of Sears Canada from 2001 to 2004. Thank you so much for joining us here today with your wonderful insights. And I hope to have you back again soon. You bet. Thanks for welcoming me. Thank you for being here. I'm Craig Patterson. I'm the founder and publisher of Retail Insider Media Limited. This is the Retail Insider interview series on video. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. Whether or not you're watching this or listening to this as a podcast, as we also have that as a channel. Take care and bye for now.